Thank you, Casey and worship team. Take your Bibles and turn to me to John chapter 1. We are continuing our exposition of this great and glorious gospel. I want to say a couple of things before we get started here. First of all, congratulations to those graduates, to Donnie. Uh, from graduating high school. Uh, that's a, a great thing. Look forward to seeing the Lord do great things in your life here in the coming years. And it's just been fun to watch you grow up, and you're not growing up yet, so um, <laughs> you may think so. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, congratulations to you. Also, Matthew Quick, who finished up uh, at Boys College on Friday. He has gone to, back to Wisconsin for a few weeks, and he'll be back with us in the fall. So Matthew has been one of our faithful interns here, and we've enjoyed having him. We get him back, and we're glad for that. Jen Taylor graduated from Seminary Wise Institute on Friday and got to walk in that hot sun out there. I got to watch from up there in my air-conditioned office, and it was glorious. <laughs> it was a glorious day, I thought, and I'm sure you did too. But congratulations to all you off. I missed anybody. I don't think that's it, but uh, what a great landmark on the on uh, the landscape of your lives, and uh, we look forward to seeing God continue to work in you. Also, this is very awkward. If you're in my small group, meet with me for five minutes after church, okay? So that describes you. Meet with me, okay? I'm sorry. I should have said that earlier. All right, John chapter 1, the word of the Lord, while we're here in the first place, let us hear. Now, the word of God is inspired by his word. Let's stand in honor of reading of God's word. Uh, I'm going to read verses 32, or I'm sorry, 35 to 42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. <clears throat> and he looked as Jesus, at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to, to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. May he add his blessings to this reading of it. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I am weak, but you are strong. Lord, I cannot change one single heart. So God, work in us and through us by your spirit, Lord, and through your word today show us great things from your word, to show us the wickedness that remains in our hearts that ought to be put to death and give us the, the grace to do that, Lord. If there is anyone here, and surely there is God who doesn't know you today, would be the day you work in their hearts to bring about repentance, turning from sin and faith in Jesus Christ and the death and resurrection of your son and God. So teach us now from your word and guard me from error and do great things in us and through us, Lord, and build your church that the gates of hell might not Stand against it for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I am convinced that one of the reasons, and one of the many reasons, that the world rejects the kingdom of Christ and rejects what we're doing here today and rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, of course, most fundamentally, it's because God has worked in the hearts, but from a human perspective, I think it's because, in part, 
But it just doesn't look all that impressive. I mean, you look at us here this morning. There's a handful of us here. You look at the, the, the church across the street, one of the largest churches in America, and relative to the population of Louisville, there's not many people there. Although we think there's a lot of people there. Really and truly, there's more people going to pass by on the interstate this morning than are in that church. It just doesn't look very impressive, does it? It doesn't look like the kingdom is conquering the world, that the mustard seed is growing up, becoming the most uh, incredible of all the plants. It doesn't look that way, does it? And our world wants to walk by faith, of course, or sight, of course. I mean, it doesn't conquer massive numbers of people, like a large army or something. It had small beginnings. And its leader was a carpenter who was murdered after a relatively young life. And yet, like a mustard seed, Scripture says it will become the greatest and the most vast of all the kingdoms. It will crush the pretenses of man at the end of time. It will become the king the kingdom of all kingdoms governed by the king of kings himself. And we know that to be true, don't we? And yet this morning we see what the world would call the very pathetic beginnings of the church when we meet what I'm going to call the first two church members here in this text this morning. It started out very, very small and seemingly insignificant and seemingly weak. But of course we know God works in our weakness, right? As we come to this text this morning, it's the third day. Notice, he says the next day. I like this. I'm an old journalist, so I like the next day and the next day. I like these facts like this. Tell me when. So the third day, since the beginning of John the Baptist's witness. And so we meet the, the first two, really the first three church members, because we're going to include Peter into that. He's going to come in at the end and, and get a name change and, and become a member of the church, of course. John the Baptist has been baptizing those who come to the Lord in repentance and he had just, he's just introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you recall a couple weeks ago when I preached on that text, when I preached on that phrase, I said this is one of the most important sentences that's ever been uttered in human history. Because it is that sentence that's building this kingdom, this incredible kingdom that we're a part of by God's grace. That millions upon millions upon millions have come into over the centuries and until Jesus returns, there will be millions more. A lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said that, John the Baptist said, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I look what Calvin said about this. He said, here we see how small and low the beginning of the church was. John indeed prepared disciples for Christ, but it is only now that Christ begins to collect a church. And that's what he's doing here, right? We see people starting to come around Jesus. He has no more than two men who are mean and unknown. That means mean doesn't mean they're, you know, they're tweeting bad things out about you or something. It means that they're lowly, you know, they're men of no uh, reputation, that kind of thing, mean and unknown. But this even contributes to illustrate his glory. And we know the glory is in the patheticness in the world's eyes, don't we? That within a short period, without human aid and with a strong hand, Jesus spreads his kingdom in a wonderful and incredible manner. And we know that's true. And it's happening now. It's happening this morning. That's what's happening before me. That's what's happening here in this church today. And you say, well, gosh, this doesn't look like much. But you know what it really is? It's Christ building his kingdom. You're his sheep and we're here for a feeding this morning, right? And it's true of every faithful church in this city and in this state, in this country and globally who meet together on this Lord's Day. 
And so two disciples are going to join Jesus' band, the first two members of his band. It's Andrew, and likely most scholars think it's John, John the Revelator, John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, not John the Baptist, uh, as we've said, is the first Baptist. But it's the author of this Gospel, though he never names himself. We think that's probably just the way he writes. And so what I want us to see this morning is four marks, four marks that are true of every follower of Christ, are true of you, or they should be true of you, help us sort of anchor us in Christ and show us how we ought to live and what we ought to be in Him. Very simple, but we see it in these first two, or I guess we'll say, I'm going to say three disciples. And here's the first one. I'll see this in verses 35 and 37 to 37. True discipleship, I'm going to say it that way, okay, no, so true disciples. But true discipleship begins by effectually hearing the word of Christ. True discipleship begins by effectually hearing the word of Christ. What do I mean by effectually? That's kind of a big word. You get that seminary. Don't give me the seminary talk. Give me something plain. Well, okay, here you go. It means effective. It works, right? It begins by the word of God working in you. God began to build his kingdom in you and through you by speaking light into your darkened heart and saying, let there be light, and you heard his word and you responded by the power of the Holy Spirit. As I prayed this morning, it's the effectual hearing of the word of God. This is the only way that disciples come into the kingdom, into this church. This is an illustration, I think, of what John talks about in John 10, we're going to get to many weeks from now, at this rate, many months from now, right? My sheep know my voice and they hear my voice. And they follow me. And that's what happened to you. You heard the voice of the chief shepherd and you followed him because you're his sheep. How do we know you're his sheep? Because you're following him. You followed him when you heard your word. And I've heard, I've been a pastor for a long time now and I hear people say, you know, I'm just really bored with this church. It's kind of boring. There's nothing going on here. And I've told people, you know, if you're bored with the word of God, then this probably isn't the church for you. Right? We're not here for our own amusement. We're here for the Word of God. That's it. Because the Word of God resonates with the people of God, even if you're not a people of God yet. That's how the elect are drawn, into, drawn to Christ. Effectually, the effectual calling is the doctrine we call it. Effectual or effective calling that every Christian receives. I mean, the hearts of Andrew and John and Peter are drawn to Jesus. Once they hear John identify him as the Lamb of God, because Jesus... Jesus asks them, what are you seeking? And so he speaks to them for the first time. They hear his voice. They hear the voice of the Messiah. And what happens? They shake hands and say, give him a fist bump. Say, hey, you're the man. No, (laughs) no. That's all we would have done, right? They follow him. They follow him. What are you seeking? Teacher. They follow him. Again, this is the effectual call because... Jesus calls his disciples because they hear the truth about him. They hear the call, follow me, and they follow him. Uh, Turn back to your left, Mark chapter 1. Read verses 16 to 20 real quick here. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And what happened? Look at this. Immediately, 
love the way Mark puts this. Mark says immediately, all through here. He's quick. He's got to be, he's double parked, man. He's got to get this gospel out. I love Mark. It's very pithy, very concise. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. No hesitation. They did it. They left their nets and they followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately, there it is again, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So they heard the effectual call, come you, come follow me. And what happened? Well, they followed him. This is what's going on here. I think in this, in, in these verses here, we're looking at back in John's gospel this morning. I just wanted to illustrate that a little bit further for you to show that's what happens when we come to Christ, when a disciple comes to Christ. I mean, G, later in John's gospel, in John 14, 6, he's going to make clear, our Lord's going to make clear what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That is the claim that our culture today hates the most about Jesus, that claim to exclusivity. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's going to make that really clear. Which tells us, of course, that all other ways, all other paths to salvation are false paths. They're false roads. I mean, the way of morality. You think, well, I'm just going to become a better person. I had one of my, one of my children tell me recently, I'm just going to work on myself. So I can't wait to see that. What you mean is you want God to work on you, which they've quickly said exactly. <laughs> now the way of morality is false. Sinful man cannot make himself good enough for a holy God. And that's a misunderstanding, is it not, of Christianity? Some people say there's a lot of sinners down there at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, to which I say, Amen. Come and join us. <laughs> Come and join us. That's why we're here, right? We're the saint, the saved, the, the sinners being sanctified. That's what we are. The way of morality is false. Sinful man cannot make himself right with God. The way of salvation through social justice is false. That's a cry we hear in our country almost ad nauseum today. We want justice, of course, but there will always be injustice in the world until Jesus makes it right at the end. And of course, we know that justice was satisfied where? On Calvary. But we wait for it to be manifested perfectly for the kingdom to come, don't we? Even though we, these are good things. We, we want to be moral. We want to see justice, right? We want to work for these things on some level, but they'll never save us. Salvation through political power is false. Jesus told his inquisitors, he said what? My kingdom is not of this world. And boys, evangelicals, I think we need to hear that to encourage us. Not as so much as a rebuke, maybe a rebuke, but more as an encouragement that political power losing the White House, let me just be clear here, in case you're missing out on what I'm saying here, it's not going to cost us the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is not overturned by what happened a year and a half ago or six years ago or whatever because we're not saved that way to begin with, not through identity politics. My kingdom is not of this world. No. In verse 37, they followed him. They heard him. They heard what John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God, not the new president, not the new Congress, right? Not the new Supreme Court, whatever. No. The, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And they followed him. And yes, they followed him physically, but there, I think there's a whole lot more in view here. 
I mean, these are small, this is a small beginning of the church. I mean, following Jesus will take on a fuller, deeper meaning as we walk through the gospel, but I think that's, there's a little more to it here than they just kind of got out of their chairs and walked behind him. I think there's more to it than that. I mean, they recognized him as the one, the one who was promised, the Messiah, the anointed one, literally. So what this means, they, they said, we found him. We found the Messiah. We found the anointed one, the one set apart by God, the one promised in the Old Testament. And all the types and shadows of, of, of temple worship, of tabernacle worship of the Old Testament, all those things are now fulfilled. He is here. He's come. And they followed him. I mean, Christ, of course, is not a, a last name. It's a title speaking of the fulfillment of all those offices that are foreshadowed in the Old Testament. He is the anointed one. And so these disciples call him what? They call him rabbi or teacher. Immediately they say, teacher, rabbi. Verse 38. And this has never changed. Again, that's part of why we're here this morning, isn't it? And why we need a faithful Bible-teaching, Bible-believing church. Because he is our teacher. It's never changed. If we are followers of Christ, then Jesus will be our teacher and we will learn from him. It's not from dreams. It's not from voices. It's from the word of God. It's from Christ that we learn right about God, who he is and what he's done. From the very start of our lives as Christians, it is absolutely essential that we be taught by the Lord. For the first disciples, this meant traveling with Jesus and listening for what he said listening to what he said, but for us, it means studying the word of God in a close, careful, in-depth, daily, regular manner. That's how we follow God. There really is no other way. Prayer in the word of God. You can't go wrong, can you, doing this every day. In John 18, 37, Jesus said, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. We must learn that truth, and not just learn the truth, but delight in the truth and delight in obedience to that truth. Christians today are as much disciples of Christ as were his first followers, as were these men. I mean, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to teach us through the scriptures that he inspired the disciples to write, and it is about him. So to learn from Christ today is to learn the Bible, following Jesus to build our faith with his truth. That's why we demand truth. And David was talking about this in Sunday school. That's why we don't preach politics. That's why I'm not going on and on about the Supreme Court tomorrow. That's important. We pray for that. Pray for that. And when that's in the text, we'll preach it. But that's not what you need. That will not do helpless sinners good. Only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. I need Jesus every single day of my life. I have Jesus but I need more of Jesus. I need to know God more. I need his word. I need to be, for this to be a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I need to hide it in my heart that I might not sin against him. And so do you. Because it tells us about Christ, about his truth. We're a people of the truth. We're a treasure of the truth and delight in the truth. I mean, the most important things Jesus has to teach about himself is who he, who he is and what he's done. His person and his work, what he came to do. Let me think about the I am statements, just example here, and seven I am statements, which we usually try it out at Easter, right? We should be studying those all the time. Jesus telling us who he is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. 
I am the good shepherd. All those things are so much significant in that language and filling in who he is, the person of Christ, who he is as the son of God and the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus, that Jesus, we need that Jesus every single day in our lives. Who he is and what he's done for us and that means to, what it means to trust and follow him and obey him. We all know that through his word. I think the weakness of the church today is because of the biblical illiteracy of the church today. Biblical illiteracy in evangelical churches today is staggering, probably like no other time in history. We have all these resources. We have sermons. We have, we have the internet, which is uh, terrible in some ways, but glorious in other ways, right? There's so much. I mean, you can listen to, uh, you know, you have the Reformation Network. You can listen to sermons all day long. You hear R.C. Sproul preach the same sermon like six times if you listen in one day. I've done that before, I know. It was working. <laughs> Maybe I didn't get it the first time. So much, and yet we're so biblically illiterate. I mean, every tra different translations, good, great translations. Of course, there's bad translations. We'll talk about that later. But staggering is biblical illiteracy. I mean, Judge, Judges 2.10 explains that Israel fell into disarray because there arose another generation who did not know the Lord. And I can't pick on the generation behind me and say, boy, these young kids. <laughs> no, my generation. We don't know the word of the Lord. Even in places where it's kind of venerated in a bit of a superstitious way. We go to church. I grew up in a place where everybody goes to church. You want to rob, you want to rob the houses in my hometown? Well, just go on Sunday morning. You can do that. Because they leave their doors unlocked still. <laughs> oh, they go to church. And yet they don't know the Bible. They hold it up and say, we the word of God. We like it. But there arose another generation who did not know the Lord. So it is today. Many churches are known for their music. I used to go to a church that was known for its music. Man, they could sing. Wow. They had 120 people in the choir. They weren't known for the preaching. They're known for their commitment to the arts or their dynamic youth ministry, serving the poor, the downcast. They're known for something else, but not the preaching of the word. A few years ago, one of my ministry heroes, John MacArthur, came to Southern and met with us. I was a PhD student met with us, and we had to have lunch with him. And one of the guys said, 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 Pastor John, what is it that built your church? You started out as a Bible study, a small one. You have 10,000 now, and you have all this massive ministry. How did you do it? And here was his answer, and I love this. He opened his Bible, I think it was to Romans, and he just read, and he kept reading. It was called Jesus drawing in the dirt, you know. <laughs> like, and then we kind of got it, like, oh. And he looked up, and he said, that's what I did. That's it. We have no other game, do we? That's all we have, but that's all we need, right? Jesus in his word, that's all we need. Christ fellowship, are you discouraged because people come and go? Yeah, that can discourage us, but we still have the word. We have the word. We have what we need, right? We have what we need. There's going to be coming and going. This is the way this world is, the way the culture is. It's just the way it is. We have the word. We have what we need. We have Christ. We have Christ as displayed clearly in his word. And we have the, we, we have the hopefully the faithful preaching and teaching of the word. We're going to do that. We're going to keep doing that. And let somebody else worry about that. So let God worry about the numbers. Let God worry about what we have, the things we have, the programs we have. God will do that in his good time. We're going to focus on this, this one thing. We can do this by his grace, can't we? 
I love John MacArthur's answer, though. He just built on the Word of God. He just preached the Word, and they came. God's people came because it resonates with them. God's Word resonates with you if you're God's people. What does Romans 10 say? It talks about, uh, Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. You were saved through the Word of Christ, and you will be sanctified through the Word of Christ. So true discipleship, true discipleship comes through the effectual hearing receiving of God's word. Secondly, second mark of a true mark, mark of a true disciple. <clears throat> true discipleship comes in following Christ without hesitation. Verses 37 to 40. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. You get that? Such an unadorned statement. They heard this and they did what? They followed Jesus. They say, well, let's, let's Let's back up and think this thing through. No, they didn't say that. They followed Jesus, right? When Jesus turned and said, what are you seeking? They said, Rabbi, teacher, we're seeking you. Where are you staying? We want to go there. We want to be with you. Follow me and you will see where I'm staying. Because I want to teach you. And we're the whole gospel of John, that's what we're going to get, right? Him teaching, Christ teaching about who he is and what he came to do. That's what we need. Only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. I mean, in response to John's proclamation, behold the Lamb of God, they follow Jesus without hesitation. It's like the song you used to you learn. I grew up in church, so in vacation Bible school, we sung those wonderful, glorious little songs. Some of them had some profound theology. I have decided to follow Jesus. I will spare you by not singing. Okay? I won't do that. I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. That's what these men were saying. They followed Jesus, right? They didn't wait to see if they were going to have a program. Let's see, Jesus, we've got you and we're going to have a big youth group. I don't know. That's attractive. The two for one, you know, it's kind of like a trade where you're going to throw in. Jesus is going to throw something in. No, it's just he was enough. And without hesitation, because he was enough, Jesus, they went with Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I mean, we read uh, up in, uh, in Mark's gospel and also in Matthew 4. These men and others become permanent disciples. We know this. They, they continue to follow Jesus, right? We don't have just this text we have under consideration this morning. True followers of Jesus follow Jesus truly and fully. But here it begins with Andrew and John. They follow him without hesitation. And of course, it's true the disciples' relationship with Christ grows in knowledge and grows in intimacy and grows in followership and trust and all those things over time. That's sanctification. But to be a Christian is to follow Christ wholly and only trusting in him for salvation, trusting that he is the Savior, and falling without looking back, without hesitation, without doubting. There's no sense in which they're Lot's wife here. What did she do? She looked back. Why did she turn to a pillar of salt? Because she looked back. She didn't trust God. She looked back. The children of Israel, what did they do? They came out of Egypt. They didn't, have, didn't like what was on the menu. And what happened? They looked back. They were judged in this vicious cycle of judgment and restoration and, and repentance and judgment and, and unfaithfulness, idolatry and judgment, just on and on and on and on. They did that. They looked back. But these disciples, they, they followed Jesus without hesitation, 
are doubting. The Messiah, the Lamb of God had come and these men know who he is. The only proper response when you know that is to do what? Follow him. And if you're lost, that is the call, our call to you today. If you are outside of Christ and the only proper response, if you believe this, is to follow him without hesitation. What are you waiting for? I mean, Calvin's conversion is a, a good illustration of the right, our right posture before him. Calvin said, I offer my heart to thee, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Have you given yourself <clears throat> to Jesus promptly and sincerely? True discipleship comes to following Jesus without hesitation. Third, true discipleship leads to telling others about Jesus, verses 40 and 41. Andrew goes, and what does he do? I'm going to go tell my brother, Peter, about Jesus. He goes to Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. Can you imagine this? We found him. All the types and all the shadows, all the prophecies, the prophets, the priests, the kings, the Old Testament. Here he is. He's the fulfillment of all those offices. Hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy has come today, right here. He's up the street. Can you imagine, man, I, Peter probably didn't get his shoes on. He's, I'm out of here, man. I'm going. I'm going. My kids will tell you, I don't go outside. Of, I, don't, I don't like bare, go out in bare feet. That's a funny thing about me. I, I'd go, man. I wouldn't put my shoes on. I'd be long going. Messiah, he's here. He's down the street. Just imagine that. But that's what we do, isn't it? We do want Andrew to go and tell another about Jesus. And he has this amazing response. That's an amazing response. Isn't this the right response of every believer? You're excited about who you've come to know, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, and you want to tell somebody else. You know Jesus. How many family members and friends and co-workers lost have you brought to Jesus? Have you gone to him and said, let me tell you about the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let me tell you about him. You want your problem solved? You don't, you've got a deeper problem than you even know you have, but let me tell you about him. I mean, isn't that why we're here most fundamentally? My church history classes at the seminary, I always tell them, we're really here most fundamentally for evangelism. They look at me like, I thought we were going to talk about dead people. Well, the dead people are a witness to the faithfulness of God in building his church. And it's suggestive as to what we're to go and do, right? Because church history continues until God brings down the curtain on history on the last day. And we're to go do this. It's not complicated, as Pastor Doug loves to say. I think he says it ain't rocket science, as only an East Tennessean could say it. And he's right. This is it. This is what we're here for, right? What are we waiting for? We want a solution to all culture's problems, all society's problems. Bring sinners to Jesus. Getting the right man in the White House, important as that may seem, and even be at a temporal level, will not solve any of our culture's problems. Genuine problems, not comprehensively, not even close. You want to get rid of abortion once and for all? Want to see your neighbors find full satisfaction, the kind of satisfaction they'll never find in the Black Lives Matter movement and the sign in their front yard? Or identifying as the other gender? Or identifying with a certain party or politics? Bring them to Jesus. True disciples bring others to Jesus because they realize that only, and I love this hymn and I quote it all the time, but I love it, only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Only Jesus. 
Beloved, that's why we're here. Sometimes I think we forget that. Sometimes I think I have to remind myself. I can get lost in, in all the minutia of ministry and all the minutia of church life and all the coming and going and the, uh, and the, the squabbling and the glory and the, the guts and all the other stuff and, and I lose sight of this. We're here to tell others about Jesus. I mean, it might be that some of us even some of us leaders need to recover the zeal that we had when we started following Jesus. You remember that? You were a new convert. You were almost dangerous. I think you need to get dangerous again, you know? Went to gather church one time. He, he, had, a, he, had, a, he had a t-shirt made to ask me about Jesus. Ask me about my friend. I love that. He, like, the next day had this t-shirt made. He starts giving out the t-shirts to people in church. Everybody's convicted about not sharing the gospel. I loved it. I love that zeal, but we've lost it, haven't we, sometimes? It feels like. I mean, you just gotten saved. You couldn't wait to tell your lost friends, your lost teammates, your lost schoolmates, your lost family members about the good news about Jesus, who he was and what he'd done and what he'd done for you. Has that fire, that zeal that once burned hot in you, does it now, has it gone out? The, 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 that, that zeal for, and compassion for telling others the good news of Jesus Christ, does it burn at a low ebb? Let us not forget what Lloyd-Jones said, and it's absolutely right. The salvation of a single soul is the most wonderful thing God has ever done. The salvation of a single soul is the most wonderful thing God has ever done. That's it. That's the miracle. And we get to be a part of that. We don't cause the miracle or create the miracle. We get to go proclaim the truth through which God works and brings about the miracle. Do you really believe that? Do you really? Do I really believe that? I hope we do. Have you gotten over the fact, and I ask you this, but I'm going to ask you again, I'm going to ask you again probably next week and the week after that. Have you gotten over the fact that you were once an enemy of God under his wrath, that Jesus satisfied the wrath in your place, he bore the wrath of God, your sins deserved, the just for the unjust, and now you've been declared not guilty. And his righteousness stands for you. Have you gotten over that? I want us to be a church, I want Christ Fellowship Baptist Church to be a church where we've not gotten over the fact that God saved us. That we were, as to put the way John Newton puts it, that we were... Once we're blind, but now I see amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I could give you my testimony this morning and go into detail and you say, man, did he ever save a wretch? And I pray to God, I never get over that. I better never get over it, and you better not either. It's easy to go to seminary and you study all these sublime truths and you're studying the sovereignty of God, the predestination of God, and the decrees of God, and all them, they're glorious and it's, it's, it's headsy and man, you're right there just almost like looking in, staring, you know, five miles from the sun and you're alive and yet you miss the main thing. We forget about the main thing. It's Jesus, Jesus, telling others about Jesus. We must never despise the day of small beginnings. The Christian church, which has grown to number millions and millions throughout history, began with the call of Andrew and John and Peter. It began right here. The call of these disciples, right? Never despise the day of small beginnings. You look around and say, boy, Christ Fellowship, man, we, uh, we've lost some people lately and we're small, man. I am so discouraged. But let me ask you this. Do you know what God's going to do in six months? Now, usually if I were a Pentecostal, I'd tell you what God's going to do in six months. I don't know. 
God's going to do this, going to give you $100 million if you give now. Do you know what God's going to do in a year? Two years, five years? Ten? I don't know. But we trust him, right? We trust him with who is here. Because who's here is who he wants to be here. This is his church. And if we start to complain and murmur, and I do this, I'm preaching to myself, I'm not, this is not about you, this is about me. As the lead pastor of the church, then we despise the body of Christ. I have to remind myself of this. Clay and Doug and I, we talk about this. Because you hear a lot of books. I've written a book on pastoral discouragement. But God is building his church, and we get to see it every Sunday. How glorious is that? And yeah, there are many dangers and toils and snares. I mean, the whole book of 2 Corinthians, that's what it's about, for goodness sake. <laughs> what do we expect? What do we sign up for? Seminary students, this is what you signed up for. It's glorious. Don't lose that fire. Dr. Muller preached at a cha- at, uh, graduation this week about this fire shut up in Jeremiah's bones. It was wonderful. Go back and listen to it. It's like 15 minutes. Shortest thing he's ever preached probably. It was wonderful. That's our fire. We lose the fire. He's shut up in our bones. We know the gospel is the answer. We know they need Jesus. And yet we do nothing. We say, I don't want to be around sinners. And we never despise the day of small beginnings. I don't know what God's going to do here, but it's his church and it's his business. And he will build his church and we have that promise and he is building his church. And I see that today. I mean, think about, you know, it's kind of like our softball team, what I said earlier. If ever there was a ragtag group of guys, ever there was one, it was the disciples of Jesus Christ. Some fishermen, right? Some attorneys, we don't trust them, right? Tax collectors, we don't, really don't trust them. But it begins with a call of 12, John MacArthur calls 12 ordinary men. It was 12 ordinary men. What do I see around me here? Ordinary men and women. You're as ordinary as the day is long and you're led by men who are ordinary as the day is long. There is nothing special about me. I can assure you, I can take you to where I was born and raised and you go, yep, nothing special about him. Right, Allison? (laughs) We're in the same place. Same man. How'd you ever get out of there? Your knuckles scraping the ground, right? But it's God's work, God's way. And it's glorious. It, it is all the time. And you remind me I said this sometime in the near future if I tell you I'm discouraged, all right? But a handful of fishermen, tax collectors, he did it. As the gospel bears out, God does extraordinary things through ordinary people. And ordinary means, ordinary means of grace, preaching of the word, the gathering of God's body. He does it. He does. He builds this. He does this. He saves sinners through this. We're like an atomic bomb in the hands of God. And we don't even know it. Sometimes we just despise the day of small beginnings. Fourth mark. True discipleship leads to telling others about Jesus. Finally, true discipleship brings with it a new identity. Verse 42. He brought him to Jesus, Peter. Brings Peter to Jesus. Boy, you can kind of expect, boy, this is going to be cool. Peter, we know Peter, we all know Peter now, right? We think, man, what's going to happen here? (laughs) Peter's the X factor. You are Simon. Jesus looked at him, looks at Peter and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And we think, boy, that's a really strange thing he said to me there. That's what I would probably think, wouldn't it? Well, that was odd. He didn't say, it's nice to meet you. Even he said, I'm going to change your name. How dare him? Some of us like a name change, right? Cephas, Peter, changes his name. Why? He changes his name because he's about to get a new identity. 
And you say, well, he was an apostle. Right. But it's also true of you. When you become, when you are united with Christ, you become a new person with a new name. You are a Christian. That's who you are. You get a new name. Verse 42, Jesus looked at him. Jesus knows hearts thoroughly. knows your heart knows Peter's heart. I'm going to see this more in verses 43 to 51 next week, Lord willing. He sees into Peter and he knows what he is now. But he also knows he will transform him to what he wants Peter to become. So it is with you. Small beginnings, but you're going to be, you're not what you're going to be someday. Right? It's like our church. What's our church going to be? I don't know. Stay tuned. What are you going to be? I don't know. Stay tuned. That's the work of sanctification. You have a new identity. You're something different now. Up to this time, Peter's been known by Simon, son of John. That's a common way of, of, of reckoning names in those days. Was it like Simon Johnson? It was Simon, son of John, right? Jesus assigns the name Cephas or Peter, which is predictive of how he would transform his character and use him as a foundation building the church because Peter means rock. If you're a fan of the old Christian rock band Petra, you mean Petra means rock, right? Peter, if you know who that is, ask your parents. Rock, he's the rock. He's going to build his church on the rock and not on him, but what he's going to say. What Peter's going to say. This is nothing new. God frequently changed people's names to indicate their special calling. Peter means rock in Aramaic. Recall he changed Abraham or Abram's name to Abraham in Genesis 17, 5. Changes Jacob's name to Israel in Genesis 32, 28. What did he do to Peter? And I mean, what did he become? Well, we know. I mean, Matthew 16, 15 to 18, Peter makes the confession which Christ will build his church upon. He says, who do people say I am? And he says, what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And contrary to Roman Catholic doctrine, Peter is not the first pope. Christ does not build his church on him, but on that confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, what I'm preaching right here this morning. In the Gospels, we see Peter. <laughs> Boy, do we like Peter. Cowardly, sometimes foolish, impulsive, weak. weak. So weak he denied Christ three times. But Christ takes this instrument into his hand, this weak, halting creature, this weak glob of protoplasm, <laughs> and transforms him into a courageous follower who wrote two important New Testament letters, who became one of the most important preachers the world has ever seen, who would go on to proclaim the word of God with the boldness of a lion. That Peter, that rock, that's what he did with him. This is what happens when Christ moves into a life. A sinner becomes a saint. The spirit indwells them. They have a new boldness to witness for Christ. They have a brand new name, a brand new identity. Christian, that's most fundamentally who you are. No longer is your identity primarily Smith or Jones or Thomas or Williams or DeVoe or Robinson. No more. If you're still those things, that's not who you primarily are. No longer are you primarily a teacher or a builder or an accountant or a stay-at-home mom or an attorney or a pastor or a teenager or a middle-aged man or woman. 
No longer are you primarily a southerner or a northerner or a midwesterner or a westerner or a rich person or a poor person. No longer are you fundamentally a Democrat or a Republican or a Libertarian or an Independent or a member of the Tea Party. No longer are you primarily a white person or a black person or a Hispanic person or an Asian person or a biracial person. It's not who you most fundamentally are. Our culture's got that dead wrong and it's causing all kinds of problems and you see it. No, you have a brand new identity and Jesus calls us to live our lives daily in light of that identity even though some of those other things may be characteristic of us. We are most fundamentally followers of Jesus Christ. And this is transformation. This is sanctification. God's going to change you. In 10 years, if you are truly a follower of Christ, you won't be what you are today. If we could get back in the way back machine and take you back 35 years, when I was 35 years younger, I didn't have any gray hair then, maybe one or two. You'd say, man, that's not going to be my pastor someday. <laughs> it's like, I don't follow anybody but that clown right there. But God was at work, and God had a different plan for my life than I had for me. Praise God. And it's true of you. I know some of your testimonies. And he's going to do this. And maybe get frustrated with sin that just won't die in your life, and you're always going to wrestle, wrestle with indwelling sin. But God's not done with you, and he's going to make you, he's making you, transforming you. As you engage his word, as you engage his body faithfully, as you pray, as you witness to others, he's transforming you, and you are living up to this new identity you have in him. You're becoming, you are a Christian as much as you'll ever be, but you're also becoming a Christian. You're saved, and you're being saved, because you're being made more like Jesus every single day. We're going to get into the cost of discipleship later. That's for much later because there's a cost to this. We'll get into that maybe next week. The question Jesus asked these first two disciples, these first two church members, if you will, echoes throughout eternity and remains pertinent today and in, in this age and in every age and the age to come, <laughs> until the age to come. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Are you living out of that identity as a Christian most fundamentally? And what are you seeking in life? And Calvin asked, what do you seek? This kind and gracious invitation which was once made to two persons now belongs to everybody. What are you seeking by coming to Jesus? Are you seeking to merely escape the hardships of life? Yes, Jesus said, in, me, in this world there will be tribulation, but be of good cheer. Learn the old King James Version, love that. Be of good cheer, take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, he said that, but what are you seeking, just that? Just shelter from the pouring rain? Are you seeking a savior and a new identity and a new way of living? Are you seeking prestige and power? Kind of a nice middle class living. Now, I, don't, I think this is less and less true in our country as we uh, live in a post-Christian age. But it used to be respectful to go to church and give out your business card, you know, and be, I don't think we have anybody here doing that. Thankful for that. But what is your motive? Are you seeking peace in your life? I mean, the message of the Bible is that the only way to be happy is to be made right with God through faith in the Prince of Peace. And there will be seasons of peace. And believe me, if you're a Christian, there's a real, very real sense in which your problems are just beginning. 
And you say, why is that? Well, because you have new lenses, new glasses with which to see the world, and you see the trouble. But you see that you have a Savior who has overcome the world, and you're in Him. And you can rest in Him because you are most fundamentally a Christian. What are you seeking, Jesus asks. Do you merely want the, to dabble in the benefits that come from religion, or do you want to follow Jesus? If you want to follow Jesus... Beloved, do it without hesitation and do it desiring to be a completely different person with a new identity because that's what he does in a genuine disciple. Let's pray together. Father, there is so much more that could be said and yet time fails us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in us to live out of that new identity, that we would be faithful in sharing the gospel with others, that we would follow you every single day without hesitation, no looking back, no looking back. And we would be thankful for the work that your word has done in us and is doing in us, Lord. That we would see that we've been those who have been effectually called out of the general population. You've chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And you've issued the effectual call. You've convicted us of sin and you've opened our eyes. And you've done in us a work that you alone can do. Oh, Lord, make Christ's fellowship a place where we never get over the fact that you loved us and gave yourself up for us. And make us more like Jesus. And give us the ability to live out that identity every moment in him. And dependence upon him for your glory. For Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.